tell, tell me about the experience of just finishing a tour in Europe. Okay, well, this is my sixth trip to Europe, and for my very first one, I was absolutely knocked out about the differences in the way they treat artists in Europe. Uh, my first trip, none of the places that I played had ever heard of me. Okay. Right. So here's this stranger from uh, North America, and man, you know, first of all, just the physical comforts thing. They give you a nice room. They feed you well. Uh, oftentimes, there are uh, cultural centers which are supported by government cultural funds. Sometimes they're private clubs, but in both respects, or both aspects, I should say, they treat you with such respect. Uh, that it's jarring to an artist who grew up scuffling in North America. Uh, my first trip after my, I think it was my second gig, I played this cultural center. I started at 7.30, did two sets. I was back in this four-star hotel by 10 o'clock and paid three times the amount of money I would have paid in North America. And I was almost weeping with joy at this unbelievable. And suddenly I realized too why Memphis Slim and Luther Allison and all these cats came to Europe and go, Jeez, you know, look at the way I'm being treated here. Mm -hmm. You know, back in the States, I'm a Here I'm an artist, you know, and I'm not afraid to be politically incorrect. <laughs> it's all in the tone of the word. That's another thing we can get into later on. Anyway, um, it was a this particular tour was a fantastic tour. Where did you go? Three weeks, I Switzerland and Germany. My anchor gig, which I have to have, is a big festival, which is the Baden Blues Fest in Switzerland. It's been running probably 15 years now. Have you played there before? Yes, uh, every three years. Oh. Yeah, it's like you go back to 2015, 2012, 2009. And they've had, you know, the Thunderbirds, Dr. John Major, Eric Bibb, Major Axe, right? They treat everyone with the same respect. Uh, they pick you up at your five-star hotel. They carry your gear. They bring you back home. They feed you great. I mean, it, it's just such a polar opposite of, what's here well tell know? me describe sometimes what it's like to be an artist here what is the opposite side the opposite side is driving for six hours renting the cheapest motel you can find in my case you know in town um the one concession i've made to myself is that i eat as well as i can i, I used to just get the cheapest food around but i, I treat myself a little bit better because eating is very important mm -hmm. uh, for my performance and you know you lug your own gear into the place usually a small little bar i use my own pa so i'm my own sound man um there's no one that introduces you you know you're just there on your own and every place in europe is like you know people are scrambling to carry your gear introduce you okay here's a perfect example i played a little place in horheim germany in the depths of the black forest this place is so small that all the Germans that I talked to, oh, where are you playing next? Horheim, where is this? You know, <laughs> they didn't know where it was, okay? This lady has maybe 40, 50 seat cafe. She bakes five different cakes. She doesn't go to the bakery and buy them. She bakes them herself, and they look like county fair winners, every one of them. It's just the love and the care. The tables all have, uh, you know, uh, table covers on them and flowers. This is for a three-hour Sunday afternoon gig. And I'll show you later, I didn't bring it in, but they make these glossy brochures of who's coming up. Fortunately, my picture is so eye-catching, you know, that one poster mm -hmm. picture. Three places used it on the cover of their brochures, right? <laughs> and this is like a month or two long program. Right. 
slick Los Angeles. It's a little tiny town with this little cafe. 12-year-olds were there. 80-year-olds were there. You get a real wide... Everyone in the village wants to see, oh, Bluesman off Canada, you know? And it's just wonderful, you know? They put you in a little gas house down the street, and the whole feeling is just so much more cozy and welcoming. And um, also the wonderful thing is they have no preconception of what I'm going to do, and I have no idea how they're going to react, <laughs> you know? And... Plus the, well, but, but some of the festivals you've been to before, so they know you. Absolutely. Right. The, the big festivals are very sophisticated. 90% of the people speak English. But when you go to Horheim, there's hardly anybody speaks English. How did English. you get that gig? Through, uh, I had two helpers. Uh, one was a disc jockey in Switzerland named Mark Stenzler. You may even know him, Blue mm -hmm. Zeppelin. And another guy named Klaus Deuce, who lives in the Black Forest, and he helped me with some gigs. So, And a musician as well, Norbert Grill Roth, a bass player. They all just gave me leads, and you know, I emailed them months and months ago. It usually takes six or seven months to put together something like this. So at this point, I mean, I know you well enough to know that you 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 taken a few treks from your hometown, from your home. Uh, you come to Ontario for a while, um, and sometimes you go to Europe. Sometimes you go out west. Sometimes you do both. So how long you've been on the road? This is a two and a half month trip for me. I left April 17th. I returned July 3rd. Uh, I w went to Europe. I, I did New Brunswick and Quebec and Ontario until May 7th. Flew to Switzerland. Did my three weeks there. Came back on the 29th of May. And now I've got a month more through Ontario and then Quebec and back home. And how you, at this point, a month and a half into the tour, how are you feeling? Uh, I feel great. I mean, I've had a lot of, uh, excuse me. It's a little cold. Cold or, or pollen, one of the two. Um, I've had some respite in front of weeks. You know, like I told you, I went fishing for right. uh, three days. With I mean, it, I presume you have to do that if you have a two-month tour. You have to give I didn't yourself... used to. No? No, man. I would try to fill every crack, but now I'm treating myself, you know? I'm just like... I'm 70 years old this year, you know? Happy birthday, by the way. You just recently celebrated your 70th birthday. Yes. And about a year and a half ago, I had a near-death experience. I totaled my car. I guess I told you about that. No. Oh, I should tell you this story. <laughs> tell me the story. So I was playing Annie Ganesh in Nova right. Scotia. It was a, it's a restaurant gig, really fun gig, but it was 9 to 11, early gig. And I thought, and the next day was Thanksgiving. We had 10 people come over for Thanksgiving. So I thought, well, I'm going to sit in my hotel room and watch TV till 1 or 2 in the morning. Might as well drive home, and then I can help Vicky with right. the dinner, right? Santa Kanish is probably about four or five hours away from here. Oh, three? a little over three. A little over three. So first two hours were fine. I, I got to Truro and I started to get a little sleepy. So I, you know, put the spin on my eyelids and stuck my head out the window and turned the radio up, all my usual tricks. Except they didn't work this time. So I was on cruise control, 110, on a divided highway. I fell asleep. Wow. First time. I have been on the road 46 years. I've never been in an accident. Ever. Okay. So I learned what the words rude awakening really mean because I woke up hitting the gravel on the shoulder. So I woke up to dust and gravel everywhere. And fortunately, I don't know what, but something made me pull to the left. If I'd gone to the right, because I didn't know where I was, uh, there were Volkswagen-sized rocks in a ditch. I would have been dead right. instantly. So I pulled it back on the highway. Two in the morning, fortunately, no one was coming. I did two 360s. I could only hit the brake and get the cruise control off, but I was 
totally out of control. I've never felt this before. Just hanging on, right? And this is just waking up to this. This is just waking up. Okay, so two 360s. I hit the center median gravel and rolled two times. So I landed upright. The front windshield is blown out. The back window is blown out. The passenger pillar post is crushed to about this high. And the airbags didn't deploy. I was amazed. So I'm saying, I looked down. There's no blood, no pain. I gingerly open the door and get out. Unscathed, nothing at all. So meanwhile, a car on each side of the highway stopped. They saw my headlights tumbling, right? They both ran up to me, are you okay? You know, yeah, I'm fine. And just then the patrol car, CMP car pulled up with a female officer. And for an instant, I thought, should I make up some you know, deer jumped in front of me or something? I thought, you know what? I'm just going to tell the truth. I told her I'm a musician on the road, never been in an accident. I fell asleep, you know. And my hands, I put my hands, I was so grateful to be alive. I wasn't even shaking or anything. My, I was dead calm. And I think from being so straightforward, she didn't even give me a breathalyzer. I thought any single car accident like that was dear regret, musician just yeah, came back from yeah. working to go. Didn't even give me a breathalyzer. But they could probably tell, though. She probably could. Of course, she couldn't tell. I smoked a cup of drinks that night. <laughs> what? <laughs> really, I know you're shot. Um, so I called the CAA. Well, first of all, I had to make the call that Vicky has been dreading for 35 years. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you've never had anything, anything never had resembling an accident? No, I mean, running out of gas, that's the closest thing, you know. So called Vicky and the RCMP wise gal told me, look, tell her you're okay first. Then tell her what happened. <laughs> so I did. And, of course, I couldn't be towed to a mechanic because all my gear was there. So I called the CAA. They towed me right to my driveway, 530 in the morning. Vicky comes out in her nightgown and just, well, how did you survive this, you know? And then a few hours later, we had the beginnings of 10 people coming for the Thanksgiving. And they, there's my car in the driveway. What happened to you? I said, Let's wait till everyone gets here. I'll tell the story once, some <laughs> ten times. So I'm very, very lucky. But I was so impressed with that Subaru, I went out and bought the exact same vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Did that change you at all? It made me realize that, number one, I'm not 35 anymore. And number two, if I can fall asleep in front of the TV, I can fall asleep behind the wheel. And generally, Mako, on the road... All my traveling is done in the daytime. You know, I get to the place in the afternoon, do a sound check. All After the gig, I got around maybe three minutes to a motel. But I never travel at night. So this was rather unusual. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, you know, I recently spoke to a musician who travels often at night after gigs. And his theory is he's got long territory to cover and he'd rather do it with less traffic. And I can understand that, but I can also understand the dangers of it, you know. Absolutely. Uh, wow. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you're you were safe. Well, so am I. That's crazy. Yeah, I'm I'm well. talking to Morgan Davis, who I've known since early 2000. Um, somebody oh, who's earlier music- than that. No, actually not, because I started the the project in 2000. So, talking blues. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, it was 2000. I, I moved to Nova Scotia in 2000. It had to be a little after 2000. But it, it was close to the time when you decided to move. That's amazing. Yeah. It must have been either right before. Or, oh, well. Anyway. So that interview I did back then, so I, I many, many years ago, and this would have been probably the first season of a TV show, I got a chance to meet you and interview you. And we spent about an hour at this place. And it was, it was one of the eye-opening 
experiences for me because I wasn't really sure where the show was going to go. Wow. And, and we had a great interview, as I recall. Yes. And, and um, I thought, okay, so maybe I could actually do longer pieces. And I, I just remember it being a, a big moment for me. It's, it's, there were a few people I got to interview early on that kind of changed my direction, and you're certainly one of them. And what can I say? I can say that it was so enjoyable for me because it was one of the best interviews I've ever had. Thank you. Because of your questions. Absolutely. People mostly ask you very pedestrian questions. They could get the answers off the internet, right? <laughs> right. You asked some really probing questions, so it was fun to think about. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you a typical question just to okay. go back. Sure. So tell me how you first got into music. I've always loved music, even before I started to play music for fun or for a living. Uh, growing up in Detroit, you know, Motown and, and early R&B and blues was just, it was in the air. I grew up in downtown Detroit, you heard Ike and Tina Turner and Fats Domino and Jimmy Reed and all that stuff. And then I had a cultural shock when I moved to California at the age of uh, 14. Suddenly I was immersed in this lily-white surf music world, you know, Downey High School, all white, one token Mexican. Right. Karen and Richard Carpenter were in my graduating class. Really? Yes. So I retreated into folk music, right? I heard of this guy named Bob Dylan. You know, who's this guy, you know? Then reading his back of his album covers, Blind Lemon Jefferson, who's this guy? And so that was the beginning of my way into folk music. And at this point, are you playing at all? No, still was not playing. I didn't start playing until 16. I broke my leg. Had nothing to do. Went to a flea market, bought a $4 guitar, started noodling around. Had a friend's sister who played guitar. She showed me a few chords, and away I went. Was it love with the instrument immediately, or? It was a vehicle for my politics, because I was heavily involved in the anti-war movement. So it was a really good vehicle for singing protest songs, and, you know, Woody Guthrie songs, Bob Dylan, and all that kind of stuff. That was my first kind of foray into uh, playing music and uh, then the blues kind of crept into my life again you know through the music that I loved when I was a kid I started to hear you know the cream was a big band you know I thought, mm-hmm. wow some of those sounds are very similar to what I heard you know and then Paul Butterfield Blues Band Johnny Musselwhite and you know some of the local bands the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band was a local band in Long Beach we played our college at noon you know <laughs> so you know, being exposed to some roots music and also being in L.A., you know, I saw the Blues Project very early on. Uh, I got to see, uh, you know, some performers in very intimate venues as well as huge ones. And it was a rich musical stew at that time, right? So. And at what point did you think, well, maybe I want to do this? Still not until I left for Canada because of, again, politics. Uh I played guitar for fun. I, I was married. It was after my wife split back to California. We were divorced. I was on my own. So that was the time where I thought, well, and I was teaching school also at the time. And I thought, okay, I'm not really digging teaching school. I like the kids, but I didn't like the administration. What were you teaching? Like what grades? It was, it was junior high school. So I was 22 years old teaching like 14 and 15 year olds, right? And the rest of the teachers were like twice my age. And it was such an inbred school. It was in East York. Some of the teachers that were teaching there had gone to school there and been taught by other teachers still teaching there. It was like so (laughs) incestuous, right? 
And I was not only not from East York or Toronto, I was from California, man. I was like weird. Right? So, so what was that like? You said it was weird to go to California from Detroit. What was it like to go from California to Canada? Uh, I thought because of its proximity to Detroit geographically that I would kind of fit right in. And, and in many ways, you know, the, the buildings were the same, the weather was the same and all that stuff. But, well, two lessons. Number one, the first time I was here, the Democratic National Convention was held in Chicago. Right. And to watch that from Canada was a bizarre mixed feeling of relief to be in a safe haven to watch this and just abhorrent horror at what was happening in my homeland to see these police just beating people who were Mm -hmm. peaceably protesting, right? So translating that to living here, you know, I... The minute I crossed the border, I felt a great wash of relief because for the last two years I was there, I knew I was draft age eligible. I was tense all the time, you know. So it was a great sense of relief. Uh, Was that a hard thing to do? Everyone asked me that question. You know, really it wasn't. It's a very similar culture. It's the same language. You know, I had friends who went to Sweden and Israel. Mm -hmm. We all, 14 of us went all over the world, basically, when we left the state. That was hard, you know, to go into a country with, a different language, I right. thought that would be very difficult. So really, you know. But almost giving up your homeland. Like, I just wonder what that must feel like to say. I had not much respect for my homeland at that point. Right. You know? I had not much respect. And I, you know, I, I, all the time I was in Canada, I could vote in absentia because I was an American citizen. I never voted except for Jimmy Carter. He's the only guy I ever voted for because he seemed like a human being. But everybody else who came down the pike including Obama, were just, you know, robots to me, more Mm. robots in the political machine. So you decided that teaching wasn't your thing and you decided that you would play guitar. Yes. How easy was that? Uh, It was, again, mixed. It it was real easy and really difficult. Real easy in that I sold everything I owned except for my guitar, and I had just one, a knapsack full of clothes, and then I bought a single mattress, which fit handily in a closet in a one-bedroom apartment in Rochdale. There was a couple of expats living there. $14 a month rent. It's really low overhead. And I'd saved, I think, probably a five or $600 in that thing. And I just suddenly, I didn't have to work. I just played guitar from morning till night all day. And Rochdale, any... Elevator lobby or stairwell. There was another musician there jamming with other musicians. It was, as far as going to school for a beginner musician, it was fantastic. And after about six months, then I would sidle up to like, you know, there was a whole economy inside the building aside from drug dealers. Mm. There was beer stores, sandwich dealers, restaurants on people's apartments, right? So I'd sidle up to a sandwich dealer. I said, uh, I'll sing about your sandwiches if you, if you feed me. So he made me a sandwich. Like, hey, come on over. Ham and cheese is really fine, you know. And we make up little songs for him and stuff like that, you know. Everybody was high, too, you know. It was just such a, a great time. Did writing songs come easy to you? Writing songs? Yeah. Um, or commercials in this case. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, making up improvisational, like what I call topical blues, yeah, which will never be recorded or written down. They just off the cuff. That's really easy for me. Writing real songs, a little tougher, you know. You got to remember, for the first probably five or ten years of my career, when I started making my living, I was doing covers. 
you know, we were a Chicago blues band and there were so many great Chicago blues. That's what a student does. Just virtually every blues player I know, that's what they start. They, they do all the covers they can. And then slowly, you start to get ideas. Because it's hard to write a good blues song. Mm-hmm. You know, there have been so many great ones written and the form is so narrow that to get a little something different, it's quite an achievement. And but is it something that you love to do, the writing portion of it? I love to complete it. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's 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 tough sometimes when you're wrestling with a song. You know, uh, in my case, most songs don't just flow out of me. That's only happened maybe two or three times. Most songs are bits and pieces of ideas that you work for weeks or months and finally put some scraps together, and then you throw most of them away. So when you started first started learning. Can you go back to that place where you were learning blues? Absolutely. And thinking what what it was that you were trying to do? The music was so powerful. And I was also very lucky to be in Toronto at that time because it was on that circuit of Chicago blues guys. They would all do Chicago, Detroit, Windsor, London, Ontario, Toronto, Montreal, and Quebec City, right? So I got to hear Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Buddy Guy, and Junior West. I got to hear a buddy guy when he was still driving a tow truck. Mm-hmm. He would drive up here, do the gig on the weekend, go back to work Monday morning, right? So the music was so powerful that like every other student of the blues that I've ever met, you first start to get your your itinerary together, which is Dust My Broom, Stormy Monday, Sweet Home Chicago, just all those blues classics. You learn them. You learn all the licks, the introductions, the endings. And then you have this language in common with other musicians. And that's the way Downshot, Michael Pickett, like you name it, everybody in Toronto went through that thing, you know. And then you start writing songs. And did you know, like knowing that there's Buddy Guy, who's I presume somebody you might have looked up to, is still driving a tow truck, did you know what playing the blues meant? Like in terms of where you could possibly go with doing this? I don't think at 22 you have a full idea of what um, kind of a commitment right. it entails. You know, um, I was always surprised when I go, wow, I've been doing this for 10 years. Wow, I've been doing this for 20 years. You know, it, it kind of creeps up on you. Right. You know, actually what I say to myself is, I've been getting away with this for 20 <laughs> years, right? Because I have such high standards, you know. And... Uh, yeah, um, it, it, it kind of it sneaks up on you after a while. At what point was there no going back? Like you well, obviously the, started and you got a band together, you did some gigs every weekend or whatever. But yeah. At what point did that become a career? I would say for the first 15 or 20 years, there were many times when I wanted to. I thought, I don't have the stuff to do it, right? So there were many times when I thought I'm not going to be able to keep doing this so I, I would say probably for the last 20-25 years I've felt yeah I'm, I've done this long enough to maintain a career so can you elaborate on I don't have the stuff to do it like was it questioning your ability yeah, or? yeah. just questioning whether I had you know the singing voice number one because the voice is the number one instrument in the blues and it took me to the point where I finally realized my failures and accepted my limitations 
for me to work on my strong points. You know, I'll never sound like Holland Wolf. I'll never play like B.B. King, okay? Except this. You're Morgan Davis. You have a certain gift. You better find out what that gift is and capitalize on it. So my gift in the blues is humor, phrasing, you know, maybe tone, but certainly not technician whiz on the guitar and certainly not operatic skill on the voice, you know, like... When I sing with vibrato, it's like it surprises me. It is an accident, you know what I mean? I hear great singers who can control their voices, and it's just like, oh, my God, I'd give anything to sing like that, right? But I also have to tell myself, Morgan, you can't sing like that, and you never will. So work on your strong points. What what can you do to make the song work, you know, and deliver it with authority without having to go into a skill levels you don't have but how easy is that to to come to terms with that it's not <laughs> it's not because i think it's brilliant i mean it makes sense and i'm sure everybody else has gone through that and somehow define their own sound hopefully i mean a lot of people don't get to that point but to to be able to say i can't do that but i can be me and define that me is it's amazing well i gotta thing. tell you that I think my fans are a lot of the people who have kept me going, that reinforce it. You know, to have people come up and genuinely tell you that they love their, your music or this particular song, and when you get that feedback, you start to realize what your strong points are. I mean, the classic example is Why July, okay? To me, it wasn't any better of a song than the ones I'd written by that time, but someone really liked it. Colin James put that song on the map, And I don't know if you've heard his new version of it. The live one? Yeah. Yeah. Holy man. I mean, the first one, he was 20, 21 years old. Right. Right? Just a kid. And did a great job on it. Did you Did you know him then? Uh, I met him about a year or six months after he recorded it at the North Country Fair, where, where I'm going to, uh, in Alberta. There's the 40th anniversary this year. I met Katie Lang at the North Country Fair, too. No one, no one knew her. I told Derek Andrews about her. He said, you got to get this gal to Toronto. And he did. So I met him there. So but this was after you re- released the song. How did he come about? I released the song in, in 82. He got the album somehow, and I think it was uh, just a few years after that that he did his, his cover, right? Which was fantastic. But the guys closed every show now for 30 years with that song. He, it's his song, man. He has lived in that song, right? And, and man, I heard that second version, and it's just like, oh. God, it's so great. I don't even do this song anymore. I do not have <laughs> because, because of that? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I sing it terrible. I can't. In fact, I can't even. I had to move it down a whole key because I can't hit those high notes. Maybe. Now I can't even hit the high notes moving it down. <laughs> and now it's so low on the guitar, I don't have the technical ability to play the chords necessary in that new position. <laughs> okay. Okay, but what is, what's it I like? Hope this to isn't there because this is just between you and me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just I, okay. What's it like to write a song and all of a sudden somebody else covers it and makes it their own? It only happened once to me, and it's thrilling. It's you know, I have other bands from all over the world write to me and tell me they're doing my songs. Whether they have giant hits or not, it's always a thrill to me. It's so flattering that out of all the music that's being produced and all the music that's already in the, you know, yeah, yeah. the library, the blues, that they would like my song enough to do it, you know? Some, I get these emails like, 
from France, you know, we don't can't understand the words. Could you please write out the words? You know, the lyrics. You know, really? The songs. And I'm happy to do it. You know, bands in Newfoundland and all over North Carolina. You know, I always well, how do they find me? You know? <laughs> it's just amazing. <laughs> just amazing. It must be a neat feeling. It's a great feeling, you know, because your song has stood out among all these songs to gather attention. You know. Do you remember the first time you heard Colin's version of your song? Yes. And so does Vicky. Vicky was in Eaton's shopping or something, and she was walking through the TV department, and on every TV suddenly was the video, which incidentally was banned by the CBC. It was a real steamy black and white thing of a, a guy and a gal having an affair in the afternoon, right? And very scantily dressed, and they actually banned the video. That's what she saw. She, she kept looking for a salesman. Why do you go, that's my husband's song, right? <laughs> First time I heard it was at the North Country Fair. I heard him do his version of it. Wow. Now, do you have a relationship with him? Do you know him well? Uh, I, I, I know him, but we don't email or yeah. I don't do social stuff. And the last time I saw him was when I, when I went to Nashville to get my album mixed with Colin. Colin was there as well looking for songs. So we, We're talking Colin Linden versus Colin James. Yes, right, together. two Collins yeah, in yeah. my life, right? So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a hello kind of relationship with not really a deep friendship like Colin Linden I've you know yeah yeah but that's pretty amazing I mean to and and the fact that he's still playing it 25 30 years after the fact and yeah he still closes his shows with that song that was his big hit you know so that's that's very satisfying you know well I mean I think you know you, you talk about how difficult it is to write blues songs but as I said to you when I think of great blues songs I think of your album Blues Medicine mm. And even though you don't think it's the best album, I do. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and because it's because of the songs. And I think the songs are so, like, I just think it's so easy to fall into that trap of doing a swing, a shuffle, a slow blues, and you're just changing the lyrics to a B.B. King song or whatever. Right, or right. the themes of Let's Party or My Woman yeah. Did This or Let's Get Drunk. I like, I hate that. Yeah. You know, anytime I've s- seen a misogynist sentiment in a song, I, if I like the song, I eliminate that verse. I can't even sing it. If I, if I don't feel those feelings, like for classic examples, Muddy Waters Can't Be Satisfied, which I've been playing for years. One of the verses is, I feel like snapping my pistol in your face. I'll make some graveyard be your resting place. I'm not going to sing that. <laughs> as much as I love Muddy, right. he grew up at a different time when you know life and death was a lot closer to people than it is to me. But I'm not going to sing that song these days. right? So a song has to reflect the truth, my truth. And... Uh, I don't know how I got into that one. Yeah, well, okay, so talking about Muddy, and we talked about the fact that all these great blues musicians used to come to Toronto, and you had the chance to see them. What did you learn from that experience of seeing them and, and, and watching them perform live? Two huge things. Number one, their humility and generosity. I saw very little rock star, swelled head kind of attitude, okay? Muddy Waters or Helen Wolf had finished the set. They'd sit at a table right by the stage. Anybody in the world could walk up and talk to them, you know. That really impressed me. And if you liked their music, they were so generous and giving and open, right? Number two was how quietly they played, but how intense the music was. There was always one microphone on stage at the Colonial for the singer. None of the drums were mic'd. None of the amps were mic'd. The amps were tiny little amps like this. And compared to what bands play, the volume city, like... I just did, you know, the, the Blue Goose, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
it was so damn loud. You know, I had to, you know, talk to Gary and Mike. They just, they're used to playing at that down child volume, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it really two or three times as loud as Howlin' Wolf or Muddy Waters would play. They played so quietly. But it was intense and passionate, right? And that's one huge lesson that many young musicians don't know today. They, they think they have to get the right tone by playing a tam, you know. Yet don't. And then the other thing is that because of those opportunities, you got a chance to play with some of your heroes, like Hubert, like Sonny Lennon. Yes. So tell me about that and what that taught you. Well, it's funny. I was just telling that story to a friend of mine today. When I was 22 years old, I went to the meat market, which was below the Colonial, different club, to see Sonny Landslim. And I went there on the first Monday, and I went there early, and I saw Sonny Land pull in the back of that place in an old beat-up station wagon. He was singing through a Heathkit amplifier, which is Radio Shack amplifier, with a microphone that had a cord permanently attached to it. You couldn't even unscrew it. It was like one of these $20 dynamic microphones. And he'd play whatever shitty piano was there, right? In this case, you know, an upright that was out of tune. And I thought, here, I'm 22 years old. He's 69 at the time. I go, that's an old man, you know what I mean? <laughs> to me, that's a really old man. How can he drive around by himself all over the country and play? <laughs> here I am. You know what I'm doing? The same exact thing as him. Just that's the blues life, the blues tradition, you know? So... I guess I'm in good company, you know what I mean? It's pretty amazing. It really is. To think that, you know, you, you started playing because you love the music and somehow follow the footsteps. And here you are celebrating your 70th birthday, talking about that 29-year-old man watching the 69-year-old blues man. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's, it wasn't, it's not something like you plan a career. It's just a path that you walk along. You find out, you know, you're walking along the same path as, as many other. Of course, much easier for me. I just happened to be born with the right color skin for North America because these guys, mm-hmm. they slept in their cars. And, you know, unless they hooked up with a woman, they, they, they couldn't get a hotel or anything. So I, I got a charmed life compared to the way they traveled, really, you know. Um, so so not, not too long after we had met, you decided to move to Nova Scotia. Yes, what was that move like? So now you've gone from Detroit to California to L.A. to Toronto, and was that a difficult decision? Was what was the deci- I don't even know what the decision was. To it, was a, it was a mixture of things. Uh, but one of the big things that really uh, spurred it on was my wife was do- diagnosed with breast cancer, so we wanted to get to a little cleaner environment than here. What they call the golden horseshoe is where all the industrial agricultural runoff yeah. in Ontario comes to. So it wasn't the, the best environment to be in. My daughter was finishing elementary school going to junior high, so she would be in a different school. So, and I was just getting sick of how Toronto was getting crowded and, and over, you know, there's no fast way to get across town anymore, right. you know? The first 15, 20 years were wonderful there, but the last 10 were just not the same. Plus, when I first started playing, there were six or eight clubs I played in rotation here. Now there were two. It was Mm -hmm. Chicago's and the Black Swan. Well, Silver Dollar, you know, three clubs. Albert's Hall just became an off-track betting place. Grossman's, you know, I I was done with the $100 a night Grossman's thing. So 
you know, this vital big city suddenly had only two or three gigs, and I thought, I don't know, I want to go someplace else. And did you know what that someplace else would offer? Like, did you I, know what Halifax had to I, offer? I really, I, I knew from my traveling, because I'd been, you know, all over Canada, that it appealed to me a lot. It was small, it was cozy, not too many people, nice, polite people. Really a difference between the West Coast. West Coast was much more like California. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Nova Scotia had a real, and the Maritimes in general, had a real Canadian small-town feel to it. And, you know, I knew there was a blues club in Halifax. I scooped a house gig there because I need to play at least once a week in the wintertime. I'm so busy from April till November on the road. Wintertime, you stay closer to home, but I needed my hand in the music. So for 18 years, I've had a house gig at Barely's, which is wonderful, you know. Um, and Vicky took a little longer to adjust, you know, because she, being an Ontario gal, had long, long friendships here. I'm basically a loner, you know what I mean? I have acquaintances and a few friends, but... So she, the first two years, was really hard for Vicky. But all it took was a couple of trips back to Toronto to make her realize, you know. She and Rosie went back, and they were walking down the street. Rosie says, Mom, it smells here. It is so loud. I mean, my neighborhood is so quiet, you know. Dark skies at night. These essential elements of quiet and darkness being a city boy all my life, I never really snapped to it, right? I think it was my fourth day after we moved into our house in Nova Scotia. I was at the front door in the morning drinking a cup of coffee and a crow flew by and I could hear the flapping of its wings. Here was a 52-year-old. I'd never heard this before in a city, right? I said, wow, is that ever amazing? You can hear the flapping of a bird's wing so... Wow. Romantic that I am, I just fell in love with it. So Vicky's doing well. Yes, so we're good news. She's she's doing fine. Yeah. Did it did that affect your career at all, or did you? I'm not even sure if you looked at it that way. Did it did it have a the, positive the move re- or her sickness? No, sorry, no. The move. The move. Um, all my Toronto musician friends thought I was crazy, but to me, I can get in my car and tour just as easily as from Ontario. I can get on a plane, fly to Europe just as easy as, as Ontario. So it really didn't impact on me at all. Right. You know? Not at all. And then when you see what's happening in Toronto now, oh, I'm so grateful I did this. You know? the, only, the only bad thing financially is that we paid 105 grand for our house, and I think we got 250 for it. Right. So we thought, oh man, are we ever making a killing here, right? It's a million dollar house now. Yeah. Right. So if we'd have waited a few years, but if we'd have waited a few years, we wouldn't have that rich experience in Nova Scotia. So I'm, I'm content with it, you know? And how has Nova Scotia changed you as a person? Um, the biggest impact is I don't spend nearly as much time comparison shopping for stuff. <laughs> you know? If we needed something in Toronto, I would spend a whole day going from Canadian Tire to Home Depot and this. Now I just go to the hardware store and get it. You know, I don't give a damn if it's $3 more than I could get it someplace else. You just go get it and you live life. <laughs> and that alone simplifies and de-stresses so many things. You know, mm-hmm. Sometimes having less choice is good. You know, oh, for sure. Less options. Simplifies life. And, and Okay, so you're talking about being a loner and being comfortable traveling on your own in your car, driving across the country. 
When you do that and you spend a lot of time in the road, yeah. what happens in the car? Like, what are you doing when you're traveling from here to, to Halifax or from Halifax to here? It's my golden time. It's a time where my mind can just go anywhere it wants to go. I have no phones to answer. I have no obligations. I don't have to talk about the weather. It's just, it's, I become myself. I become free. I become Morgan. I let my mind, I'm free, you know. Do you write? I write, oh yeah, sure. Yeah, a lot of my ideas come driving because it's just a wonderful free association. So it's the classic kind of getting on a napkin or a pad of paper, just a scrap of an idea, you know, while I'm moving along. But I love being on the road. I really do. And especially this time of year. I love traveling in the spring in Europe or here, you know. Okay, so, yeah, when was the last time you saw Vicky? Uh, April 17th. And will you not see her until you go back? Yeah. And I presume you're still in conversation with her on a regular basis. but We've had two phone calls now in a month and a half. Wow. Yeah, we email every once in a while. But I'm just not a small talk kind of guy. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, you know, I've had so many guys in my band who are neurotic, or their wives are neurotic as far as, you know, They'll call me every day, you know. Why? You know? <laughs> we got lots of time to talk when we're together. You know, it's like, I'm on my own, you're on my own. Let's enjoy this. I think it's the secret of my marriage. And, and what happens when you go home? Is it easy to just reacquaint yourself? There's re-entry. Re-entry is a very delicate process. <laughs> you know, after you've had this freedom to eat when you want, what you want, oh, right, right. all that kind of stuff, suddenly you have to... Engage in civil conversation, be nice to people, all that kind of stuff. It's difficult. Yeah. If you think about re-entering on vacation, you go on vacation, yeah. re-entry is so important. It can ruin the whole vacation if your re-entry is bad. It's a real art, right? <laughs> so in a similar vein, it's, it's the same with this. And have you figured that the... No. No. <laughs> to be candid in, in a word, No. <laughs> And how long does it take to, to adjust to that re-entry? Anywhere from two or three days to a week or two. Depends on Vicky's mood, my mood. Yeah, but it, but it makes sense that you know you, you live a completely different life. Yeah, it's a hell of an adjustment. And so you go back in July? Yes. And then what happens for the summer this year? Well, uh, Vicky's going to be working every day. I'll, I've got gigs on the weekends and stuff. And... That's when Vicky's days off are, you know, so we, we see each other a little bit on the weekends, you know, and we are going to Newfoundland together, though she did book that time off, and that's our little... And you're doing week, two weeks? About 12, 12, oh uh, no, she's going to be with me eight days. Yeah. So at this point in your career, and how many years did you say, 46 years? 46 years now. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so first of all, could you have ever imagined doing this for 46 years back then? Uh, not when I started. No, I guess not. It still surprises me when I think I'm 70 years old and been playing the blues for most of my life. It, it still is a surprise, you know. And would you say that at 70, you're better than you were at 50 or 60? Well, this is interesting you ask that because I've become a different player, okay? When I was 50, I was a great ensemble player. I had really good bands. I was a good soloist. Now I can't hardly play a solo. I mean, playing with 
the, the guys at the Blue Goose the other day. I, I've become a solo performer. I concentrate on groove and phrasing and all that kind of stuff. And I'm just out of shape for playing solos. I feel clumsy and fingers fall all over each other. It's just not fluid. Because to do something well, you have to do it all the time. Mm -hmm. And I just don't sit around playing lead arpeggio solos at home, you know. So when you're back home, do you ever, so you never play together with a band? Wow. Yeah. So the Blue Goose is like a rarity then. It's a great rarity. Now, when I first moved to Nova Scotia, my house kids, the guy would, you know, occasionally Jeff Arsenal lived out there and Brian, my bass player, Brian Bourne out there. So once or twice a month, we would do a band, a band gig, you know. So I had my hand in, but then real quickly, the austerity program came in and he just wanted solo. So I would say 95% of my gigs, 98% of my gigs are solo gigs. And what was the biggest adjustment to being, becoming a solo artist? Honing a repertoire, yes, honing a good repertoire, and uh, also adapting some of the songs I'd written for a band to a solo performer. Right. So how much of that did you do before you moved to Halifax? That was right on the cusp of, of uh, changing those years where, the, where I was starting to do a lot of solo work. Um, you know, it took me, took me quite a while to... Uh, until I could get a solid thing, I would say three years or something like that. But it's not like you miss playing in a band. Not really. Not now, because it has to be a very special band. Mm -hmm. It has to be like Alec and Mark. Those guys, they know me, you know. With other bands, it's, it's just so damn loud. I'm, I'm overplaying, I'm straining myself, and, you know, I, I'm not a loud player. And those guys know, they just know exactly what volume to play at to keep me comfortable, you know. But they're only two players <laughs> in the whole wide world. Well, pretty well in my wide world. I mean, you know, I play with guys who've been playing 20, 30, 40 years, experienced players, and they're just, many of them are just, they're not as sensitive. They're not, they don't really listen to what the guy's singing and playing. You know? mm. Oh, I know the song, you know. And, and, dynamics, you know, coming down at the beginning of every verse, just stuff that's so ingrained in me and Alec or Mark that experienced, many experienced musicians just don't, still haven't learned. You know? So at this point, how do you get better? I keep attempting to get better because I don't want to just get by. You know what I mean? There's so many blues guys who at my age now, they've got their repertoire, that's all they're going to do, and they just do it, and after a while, if you play the same songs all the time, you're going to be on automatic pilot. There's just no way around it. So to keep myself in that, I must still write new songs. They're interesting. Mm -hmm. They keep it fresh and alive for me, even if it's covering new songs, you know, which I do occasionally. So I think that's the thing that's, uh, that saves me from becoming a dinosaur. And, and what inspires you to cover something? Because these are, okay. when you say new songs, that doesn't necessarily mean they're new songs. They're just new songs that you haven't played right. before, right? Two things. Well, what inspires me to cover something is a great song. And I can pick a great song. Every song that I pick to cover, people love. Because mm -hmm. I just know what songs I can cover well and what songs. And they generally have some humor in them. Um, to be an artist, okay, Henry Miller, a great quote from him. The aim of life is to live, and to live means to be aware, joyously, drunkenly, serenely, divinely aware. 
okay? If I don't get stimulus, I'm not an artist. When I get out in the world, man, I meet people, you know, I see things, you know, this is the stuff that gets my creative juices churning. I see stuff happening. I read the newspaper. I, you know, it's just life, living, keeping your eyes open is, is what inspires songs. You know, it's, it's a reaction to, uh, to life. Tell me about how you view the, the world of blues today. Good question. The blues has become so homogenized and so commodified, and I'm sure even in your immersion in this for the 20 years you've seen, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this international blues competition started in Memphis. I hate musical contests of any kind, American Idol or so you think you can sing, all these things. And then when they started doing it with the blues, it just like really, really pissed me off. I will never compete in this. My favorite blues guy in Canada, young guy, Garrett Mason, wonderful, real blues player, mm. genuine person. He won in Halifax. They sent him down there, and he said it was horrible, you know. Garrett just stands there and plays, okay? What he had to deal with with guys in purple suits doing somersaults and this whole, are you ready to party? And all that kind of crap, which I hate. He was a, as Andrew Galloway described, I won't say her name, Las Vegas Blues, okay? Right. So, you know, he didn't win, naturally. And I know if I went there, I wouldn't win either. You know, it's just what people are looking for in the blues. Party! And songs about drunk, you know, not... I'm getting too general. There are, of course, blues fans who are not looking for that kind of thing. But, you know, the blues cruises... And the whole the blues magazines and, and just the institutionalization of the blues has removed it from the cult of the blues, you know. When you met a guy who knew who Sonny Bo Williamson or Robert Johnson was thirty years ago, immediately you had this entire bond. You knew that you'd listen to all these records together and you had this vocabulary and, and you know. And it's happened with everybody I met that way. Colin Linden, David Wilcox, James Harmon, you know. The minute you meet, you know that you're kindred spirits. And now, it's, you know, you've got so many of these Walter Trouts and Johnny Langs and Joe Bonamassas and Gary Nugent's loud rock blues guys. And that's what many people think blues is. And if you ain't playing that, you ain't playing blues. So does that affect you as a artist? It must because I find it very difficult to get work in in festivals, you know, blues festivals. Somehow being a veteran, which which I counted on, if if anything, it's that consolation when I started doing this, was that, man, maybe when I do this for 40 or 50 years, I'm not going to get rich, but I'll have steady work. You know, I'll be like the plumber or the carpenter who's a craftsman, you know, 40 years experience, who'll be revered. No. I'm on the level playing field with that 22-year-old kid from art school who decided to play when it comes to an artistic director at a festival. They want fresh faces. Morgan, yeah, I'll be around next year, you know? Even though I try to tell my, my, my latest, uh, when I make a pitch to a festival, <laughs> I say, keep in mind, 
I'm 70 or fill in the date with like 68 right this year. I eat bacon eggs every morning and smoke heavily. I wouldn't wait too long. <laughs> right? And so I, sometimes I don't even get a chuckle from that. You know, I was expecting to go, ha, ah, you know, but nothing. So. And how does that make you feel? Like, how do you approach the business of music? At it's very point? discouraging. It's, and especially when I, you know, I describe how I'm treated in Europe. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like night and day, you know. It's just, why... Why should it be so different? You know, but it is, and I can't explain it. You know, other than the reverence for the arts and the reverence for artists that that is in Europe. That's now. Would you try to go there more often? I'm in the midst of doing that. I was just talking to Andrew Galloway about that today. I should go there every year. I really should go there every year. You know, it'd be uh, good for my bank account and my confidence. So I come back from Europe, man. I just feel so confident. You know. And that really gets beaten down in Canada, you know? When you're not treated with that kind of reverence, you know, it's just like, you know, God, you know, am I really doing this? Am I really saying something? You know? well, how do you overcome that? Because confidence is such a huge deal. It's huge. How do I overcome that? Yeah. Marijuana. <laughs> it just boosts your confidence? It just makes me, it takes me to a happy place. When I get high, the first thing I want to do is play guitar. I just love the physical feeling of playing guitar when I'm high. So that's my little, as Sonny Land Slim called cigarettes. He says, they're your little consolations. <laughs> that's what he called it. So that's why I look at weed. It's my little consolation on the road. You know. But you still have the passion for playing. Oh, absolutely. I love it. I'm as big a fan and a student of this music. I still read everything I can about it. and You know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of this music and a student well thank you so much for this time I know you're on the road you're busy and everything I really appreciate you doing this it's wonderful talking to you man it always gets me thinking and trying to order my thoughts in a way that you don't usually do when you're thinking to yourself so I love it well it's my pleasure alright thank you (laughs) 